Are the highways of Mexico becoming a real-life example of Mad Max's apocalyptic road warfare? And then we take a look at a battle that everybody knows but nobody remembers. And then we take a look back to the conspiracy iceberg for the theory known as French Viper releases. Were farmers really telling the truth that poisonous snakes were being dumped all over their countryside? Or was it just another case of mass hysteria? We'll get to the truth today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day too. It's Friday. And it's funny, I don't know why I said it like that. It's funny because I was saying that this week's recommendation week, but just to clarify, we're going to be doing a lot of recommendations. I'm really going to just kind of, in season four, be going through more of those because I got a lot of them backed up. But first off, I want to start off with a story that I saw in the news recently. Headline was very evocative. It's a very short story, but I think it's definitely one that's really interesting to cover. The headline was, Mexican truckers fight highway robbery with armored semis. Now, obviously, I immediately pictured, like, Fury Road, where the semis have, like, buzzsaw weapons. Chopping up cars running next to them. But they're having a real problem in Mexico with highway robbery. They get 30 a day. The... Semi-truck, it's not like, yeah, why do they call them semi-trucks? Is it only because it's only half a truck and then you attach the other part on the back? Or is a semi a different type of engine? Like a Hemi, but with an S? Like, I think it's actually a semi because it's only half a truck, right? And then you attach the trailer in the back. Anyways, semis, the semi-truck company, they spend, in Mexico, for security, 6% of their revenue is spent on security on their trucks. The global average is 0.5%. That's how bad it is down there with highway robberies. Uh, That's an astronomical, it's not technically astronomical, you can do the math, but it's a very, very high upgrade of money being spent for security in Mexico. So at this point, the insurance company says, we're not going to insure your transportation company unless you get armored semis. Most bulletproof, quote-unquote, bulletproof glass is only bulletproof versus handguns. It takes another type of stronger material to be resistant to, like, rifle fire. And the insurance companies are like, no, 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 no. You don't need the handgun glass. You need to make your cars impervious to AK-47 fire. And the transportation companies are saying, well, we need the insurance where there's 30 robberies a day. 30 robberies a day since 2015, by the way. This isn't a recent thing. It's not just happening this month. So they've had to start heavily armoring their semis. And they tell the driver, trust the truck. You stay in the truck, you're not going to get killed. When you get in, the little stairs uh, like disappear into the truck. And no one can get in the truck. As long as you don't get out of the truck, if they block you off, just stay in the truck. We have transponders and stuff like that. We'll get cops out there or anything like that. I think it will come to the point where... They're going to have to go straight up Mad Max and put spikes on the trucks down there and little buzzsaws and like have ward pups on the back throwing Molotovs at people because eventually you can say, okay, I'll just trust the truck and whoever is robbing the trucks are going to have to one up it. And they're like, well, if we can't get in the truck, if we can't get into the semi part, the cab with our AK-47s, then we're just going to have to start like blowing up the cab and, you know, so there's going to be this weird arms escalation race down there. And they're shipping television sets. They're shipping high-end electronics. This isn't like they're shipping... These aren't armored cars. 
These are just semi-truck drivers now having to basically get encased in armored car plating, not themselves like Robocop, but the cab has to get that hardened so people can buy a flat screen television set for $99 at Walmart down there. It's absolutely insane, but I I think it's only going to get worse. I think there's just going to start seeing this escalation and who knows, in two years from now... You could have War Pups International. It's the it, it they are the number one transportation company in Mexico, driving their little dune buggies with all the spikes and stuff like that. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to our next story. The next story was one that I found very interesting to me. It's actually quite fascinating to me. It was so fascinating. I was out with a girl, and as she's sitting there smoking a cigarette, I go, <laughs> "Have you ever heard the story about the battle between the parliamentarians?" And the royalists, and she's smoking her cigarette, and she's like, no. That's how excited I was about the story. It wasn't a random girl. It was a friend of mine. But I was, like, telling people it in real life. Now, you're going to be like, Jason, thanks for hyping it up. But anyways, so the year, I don't have the exact year. <laughs> the century, 17th century. It is the height of the English Civil War. It was a battle. The war was between the parliamentarians... And the royalists, who were royal to the king. And quite fans of Lord Fitzroyals. <laughs> Sorry, that was dumb. The parliamentarians, their nicknames were called the Roundheads, which I think is hilarious because that's how you generally describe every human head. I'm assuming they had some sort of stupid-looking helmet that made their head look rounder. But if someone's like, hey, Roundhead, I'd be like, oh, are you talking to me? That, that is quite apt for the shape of my head. So anyways, the Royalists and the Roundheads are going to war. There's this city. I really hope I wrote it down. (laughs) I didn't. Here, hold on. Oh, yeah, I did. Here it is. Clochester. Now, at this point, people are like, I know where this story's going. But but not everyone does. Don't spoil it. Don't spoil it. And when, in fact, everyone's like, I have no idea where this story's going. We're the city of Clochester. It is controlled by the Royalists. The Roundheads are going to advance on the city. Now, Clochester has two advantages going for them. It's a hardened target. It's a city that has a ton of weaponry. So they're not really worried about being invaded. They know that they can repel an invading force. But they really put their faith in a giant cannon that's posted on this wall, like on this tower of this church. And its operator, one-eyed Jack Thompson. One-eyed Jack Thompson. So you have this church tower, so you had a wide field of view. This massive cannon, the biggest cannon in the city, probably one of the biggest cannons in the region. And one-eyed Jack Thompson. Now, one-eyed Jack Thompson had only one eye. That's how he got his nickname. But he was a crack shot. He knew how to use the cannon. He was a veteran. There was no way that the Roundheads were going to take this city. They try it, though. The Royalists hold him off. The Roundheads keep trying over and over again. And again, a key to their defense was One-Eyed Jack Thompson and his massive cannon. Just launching these cannonballs. (laughs) Green grass goes everywhere. Little weeds, leprechauns are getting blown to bits. And so are a bunch of Roundheads as these giant cannonballs are rolling through the ranks, breaking everyone's legs. Bouncing off the ground, hitting them in the head, just smack. I mean, this cannon was having a devastating effect on the Roundheads. And the Roundheads are like, you know what? We're just going to lay siege. At this point, we're going to pull back to a certain area. Just lay siege. No one gets in. No one gets out. Now, it was a range war at a certain point because they wanted to lay siege. But the giant cannon could shoot farther. 
So the roundheads are like, listen, we can lay siege to this thing, but that thing's going to keep chopping us up. But what, what else? We can't take the city right now. We're just going to have to hope we don't get crushed by these giant cannonballs flying at us constantly. And we can't get our cannons close enough to knock it down. Siege goes on. And they're like, just keep shooting cannonballs at the city. We can't get to this one. We can't destroy this giant one just yet. Keep laying cannonballs into the city. There's aren't people cheering. Those are cannonballs coming to the people and killing them in the city. So now you just have daily barrages from both sides. In the city of Clochester, they're eating their pets. They're running out of food. They're eating their shoes. And they're suspiciously eyeing any fat babies because the siege is going on a little too long. They didn't have the preparations for this. They don't want to give up. But One-Eyed Jack is just is unstoppable with this giant cannon. Eventually, the roundhead general says, you know what, we got to take this cannon out. Like this, it, They don't know how bad it is in the city. They can kind of guess because it's been so long. But they know how bad it is out there when all of their troops are mangled by this giant cannon. So let's push our cannon forward. They're going to be in range of One-Eyed Jack Thompson and the giant cannon. Well, let's push them forward. We'll get in there. And I want every cannon concentrating fire on that tower. I don't care how many of our guys gets taken out. Because if we don't take this out, if we don't take that tower out, we cannot take the city. So they moved in their troops. They got their cannons and just... One eye Jack Thompson is lobbing these massive cannonballs and just blowing up. But they get enough cannons close enough and they aim them just right. One eye Jack Thompson looks up, sees a bunch of cannonballs coming at him, turns to the camera and goes, Today is a good day to die. The cannonballs miss Jack Thompson and the cannon but hit the wall underneath and the church tower collapses. Now the people in the city are very, very panicked at this point because that was their big, that was their death star weapon. That was the only thing keeping the roundheads from coming in any earlier. The Royalists show up, dust everything off. One of them picks up the crumpled body of one eye Jack Thompson. and goes, no. And they're like, dude, put him down and help us move this stupid cannon because they got to get that cannon in position. It's pretty busted up, but at the end of the day, it's just a giant cast iron thing that holds gunpowder and balls. But like the the hinges, the wheels and all that stuff were are jacked up. And they're like, we got to move it somewhere. We got to get it on another wall and we have to do it now. So all of the troops are trying to move this cannon. Roundheads are approaching and they're like, crap, this is not going to go well. They start lashing it to their horses. They start trying to drag it through the street to anywhere else where they can elevate it, but it's too heavy. They can't move it. The roundheads that take the better positions... The town leaders say, should we hold out? Should we hold out? What do we do? We lost our super weapon. We have these other cannons. We're kind of able to hold them at bay, but not for any amount of time. And they start getting word that other cities that are loyal to the king have started to surrender, so they surrender too. So the Roundheads invade the city. And the general of the Roundheads says, I want to see that cannon. I want to take a look at that cannon. So they ride their horses over to the cannon, and it's just laying there on the ground. The general's like, so many men, so many lives, destroyed by that hunk of metal. He sees a little street urchin walking by. <laughs> he sees a little street urchin walking by. He goes, hey, son, what was the name of this cannon? The street urchin looks up at him and goes, Dumpty, Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> so- 
So that story I just, first off, that story I just told you. Imagine me telling that story to a young woman smoking a cigarette outside of a restaurant. Almost word for word and about as long. She sat there smoking the cigarette. If she didn't know me as well as she did, I would assume she would have walked away or thought I was some sort of psychopath. But that is the true story of the story of Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could have put Humpty back together again. Now, there are people who say that, no, 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 the Humpty Dumpty thing references like the the fall of the power of the Pope and stuff like that. There's a little bit of dispute to that. But the back in... Those olden times, Humpty Dumpty was the term for a fat person. And just like how when we invented this, the nuclear atom bomb, I guess I should say, fat man and little boy, it was the same thing. They invented this giant cannon, and it probably had some official name, but because it was huge, people just called it Humpty Dumpty, like it was some fat dude. And that was the slang term for the cannon, was Humpty Dumpty. And that, again, some nerd will be like, no, actually, Humpty Dumpty is reference to King Edward VIII, who, no, no. Humpty Dumpty's story of about a badass cannon that fell off a wall and in the last-ditch effort to get it moved into another position. Oh, and I should say, the entire story I told you was true, except for the general showing up at the end and asking the urchin. That's all historical. So whether or not the nursery rhyme is related to that, that cannon was known as a Humpty Dumpty, a big cannon. I don't know. I really like the story. I thought it was charming. As a young woman smoking a cigarette. And she goes, yeah, I think I heard that before. I was like, oh, that's all the only response I got from my animated story. She doesn't listen to the podcast, so I can say whatever I want about her. That's the power of the podcast, apparently. I've made that comment a couple times. Oh, she doesn't listen to the podcast. I can say whatever I want. So the last story we're going to cover this night is an interesting one. It was one on the conspiracy iceberg, but there's so much on the iceberg I never really noticed it before. And it was a request. Someone sent it to me. It was a young man, I'm assuming. It was an email from Astoria, not the country. Is there a country called Astoria? The entire country emailed me at once. But there was this urban legend. This is really fascinating because it's one of those things that you start peeling back layers. Now, my research consisted of reading an article that was so well written that that was it. And because most of the sourcing is, most of the articles about this are in French and it's an older story, it was really the only one covering it. But it was a. It was a very, very, it wasn't even really an article. It was more like a research paper. There is this research paper known as Viper Release Stories, a Contemporary French Legend. And it's an onion, man. It's a weird onion story. So this is the conspiracy theory in the nutshell. It started off in the 1980s in rural France. You'd have farmers, you'd have, you know, people walking through the countryside. And they'd see a viper and they'd be like, what the? That's weird. There's normally not snakes in this part. I mean, I know there's snakes in France, but that's weird. Snake scurries on by. They walk a little bit further, and they see another snake. And they're like, okay, now that's really weird. Because there's definitely... I've never seen two snakes on the same day. Keep walking a bit. And then they see another snake, and they're not just like, well, that's super weird. It's a different snake. It's not the same species. So now they're like, okay, now I've seen three snakes, and one of them was completely like this is really weird they'd go home they'd sit in their little thatched hut i guess they probably still live like that in the 1980s in france they have a little thatched hut they're smoking their hobbit weed and they go you know antoinette 
Today I saw the most curious thing. And the Antoinette goes, that's weird. You sound like an old British guy. Yeah, wee oui, wee, oui, yes. Today I saw the most curious thing. <laughs> now he sounds like the Count from Sesame Street, apparently. He's like, you know, today I saw the most... Well, okay, now he's Italian. Forget it. No accents. He goes, today I saw the most curious thing. I saw a bunch of snakes. That is weird, right? And she's like, yeah, that is weird. And it's even weirder because I saw a bunch of snakes the other day. I just didn't figure it was worth talking about. And this, the legend grows. People in rural France start saying somebody is dumping snakes in the countryside. And as bizarre as that sounded, the proof was there. They said, look at all of these snakes. There's normally not this type of snake in this region. There's definitely not this many snakes in this region. There's a ton of them. And the legend starts to grow until it becomes, until they start to create these conspiracy theories. One, snakes are being dropped off in large, unusually large numbers. So it's not just like two or three snakes, but you'd see a lot of different snakes And generally, as you were walking through the countryside, not only would you start to stumble across snakes, like literally, you're like tripping into them like Indiana Jones, but you would see proof they were dropped, like a box or a bag nearby. That was one part of the legend. Second part, when you would stumble across a bunch of snakes, there would be an aircraft, most likely a helicopter, leaving the area. Three, you would find boxes, bags, and parachutes in the middle of nowhere. So there'd be no snakes around, but you'd find a box in the middle of a field. That's That sounds a bit of a stretch to me. And for the new variety of vipers. So you would see different types of snakes that were never in that region. It exploded in popularity in rural France. Rural, rural France. And what happened was two magazines ended up covering the story. Now, I, they were called, one of the magazines was called Rumors, and the other one was called Liberation. I don't know what those articles, I don't know what type of newspapers those are. I don't know if they're like weird news newspapers or just like regular newspapers. But anyways, it was covered in two newspapers. But by then, people were already talking about it in rural France. And they're starting to complain about stuff. They're starting to contact their government officials and say, why the hell are there a bunch of snakes in my area? Now, the French government, because this is the 1980s, they're starting to get all like, protect every animal, you know, type of thing. They said, you can't hurt snakes. <laughs> that was the French set up this law saying you can't hurt snakes. Very specific law. And so the people in rural France thought they're part of the cover-up. Like, why would they have a particular law protecting snakes? And then a bunch of snakes show up in our backyard. Another interesting thing was the conspiracy theory started in the 1980s. In 1979, the government made the sale and exploitation of snakes illegal. So France does have a snake population. I, when I think of France, I don't. the first thing I don't think of is like, oh, snakes. Actually, if I had to think of what animal lives in France, I can't even think a cow, maybe? But cows live everywhere. Like, are there any animals indigenous to France? Whenever I think of snakes, I think more like Middle East or Africa or something like that. But they have enough snakes in France that they had to pass a law saying you can't sell them and you can't exploit them. And then a couple of years later, there's a bunch of snakes everywhere and the government's like, you can't hurt them at all. You can't hurt them at all. So people started thinking about the cover-up. But, so the, so the people in rural France are having to deal with all this stuff. They're reporting these snakes, that, and people are originally saying, it's just an urban legend. There's no helicopters dropping off snakes. It's mass hysteria. Maybe this person saw one snake, this person saw one snake, and it becomes this over-exaggerated story. You guys are just country bumpkins. You don't know what you're talking about. 
And all the reports were firsthand. They weren't like, well, my cousin saw a bunch of snakes. It was, I saw a bunch of snakes in the middle of nowhere. They shouldn't be there. So you had these two groups of people, one of them saying, I know what I saw. I saw snakes. And the government saying, there are no snakes there. No one's dumping them in the middle of nowhere. You don't have to worry about it. And it's funny because it's a close parallel. To, you could replace snakes with UFOs. You could replace snakes with UFOs and it's the same story. I saw a UFO. There's no such thing as UFOs. That's what was going on here, okay? But the next part of this story. So it turns out after these, these rumor, these Viper snake release stories went on for like a decade. It kind of petered out. But in the 1980s, it really started. So in rural France, there was the, okay, so, and let me say this too, the bad guys in this story. So it wasn't just there's a bunch of snakes magically appearing here. The farmers were thinking that it was people were dropping off snakes for one of three reasons. One, ecologists trying to help endangered species. So they were like, oh, we want to make more snakes appear. So they were dropping them off in the middle of nowhere where they could breed unmolested. And then the second theory was it's ecologists still, but they're providing food for birds of prey to help their population. Now, I think you can kind of guess that the farmer people weren't a big fan of ecologists. And that seems to kind of be a trend across the world. Because I need to make, put the right like nitrates into my soil and do the right stuff for my farm. And you got some scientists going, uh-uh-uh. You got to use sunflower oil for that stuff. And they're like, well, that doesn't work. I have to use this, this nitrogen. And they're like, nope, it's not natural. So you have a lot of that. A lot of that happening here, too, um, in America, where you have, like, ecologists saying you have to save this. You can't do anything there because the, you know, like, metaphysical tadpole, this is only breeding ground. And you're like, that's where my cows drink. And so you kind of always have that head bunting. So the farmers, the rural people were saying it was either ecologists trying to help endangered snakes have a safe place to breed. Ecologists were trying to provide food for birds of prey. Or that scientists from pharmaceutical laboratories were taking them out in the middle of nowhere letting them breed so they could extract the venom from them and then make anti-venom and sell it and stuff like that. Those sound oddly specific, but that was kind of in the town because they didn't have any proof. In the town, they're thinking, maybe it's these, maybe it's this local ecology college doing it, or maybe it's this guy. And then, you know, as the helicopters start getting brought into the story, they start thinking, oh, maybe it's a pharmaceutical lab. They're dropping the snakes off, whatever. So... Let's go back to when I said that the government said you can't sail or exploit snakes. There was a specific clause in that. There was a specific clause in that law. So they said you can't sail them, you can't harass snakes at all, leave them alone. Can't do crank calls in the middle of the night, can't pull their pants down. Pharmaceutical companies go, this is true, this is, you know, we talked about all the rumors, but pharmaceutical companies say we need to be able to take anti-venom from snakes. So we can produce anti-venom and sell it and also use it to save people's lives. And the government says, that's true. We will allow, we will allow you, this is in the law, we will allow you to take snakes and extract venom as long as you release them after you're done. So pharmacists are like, oh, that, okay, that sounds like a thing. Now you would think it's not like they would take one snake, take his venom, and then let him go out the door and take another snake and take his venom and let him go out the door. They're in the industry, so they're going to milk a thousand snakes of their venom, put a thousand snakes in a box, and take them somewhere. <laughs> they would release them. There's no law saying where they had to release them. 
So the fact that all of a sudden mass amounts of snakes were showing up in the middle of nowhere. Now, when the conspiracy theory was starting, people were just seeing the snakes everywhere. And from what I gathered, they came to the conclusion that it could be the pharmacists releasing them due to the venom because of this law. But the pharmacists, the pharmacologists, I guess is a better term, or yeah, the pharmacologists were saying, oh, no, that's not us. It's not us. And the government was denying it was a problem at all. And then, and then, between 1980 and 1982, there was an ecologist who was releasing snakes into a swamp. So it was bizarre. Both both conspiracy theories actually turned out to be true. That guy got caught. He was releasing snakes into the swamp because he wanted to help them breed. Whether or not those people were seen doing that, or they were caught afterwards, or the urban legend started first that these are the people who are doing it and they just happen to do it, it could be a mixture of all three. Because though they didn't like the ecologists anyways, so they were going to place blame on them, and then when it turns out one of them was actually dumping snakes in rural areas of France, it just kind of fit perfectly. I think the people in France who were walking around and stumbling across snakes had seen the law about snakes saying that it was okay for pharmaceutical companies to milk them as long as they dropped them off, and they just assumed they're just flying helicopters and throwing them out of boxes on parachutes and stuff like that. But the whole time, even though even though it said in the law that pharmaceutical companies could release snakes wherever they wanted, when whatever amount, the government completely denied the fact that there were as much as snakes running around out there. It was considered an urban legend among stupid, uneducated country folk in France. The same way that if you say you saw a UFO, someone could be like, yeah, you're hitting that moonshine, right? You know, like it was the same. It was the same disregard for people basically saying you're stupid for believing that. That's not true. Even though everything linked up. Now, to be fair to the the upper crust, witty or bane people who are sneering at these country people, we know the ecologists dumped the snakes. We know that the pharmaceutical company could milk snakes and release them. It's possible that the country people were exaggerating the amount of snakes in their area. But I think it's interesting because we have the two groups they suspected actually have been caught releasing snakes. The only disagreement is could they have released as many as the people in rural France say that are out there? But the disregard for their real experiences is what's so bizarre about it. You have these people who live in that area reporting an ecological disturbance, i.e. mass amount of snakes, and the government's simply shrugging and going, there's no snakes out there. Not any more than would normally be there. So why don't you go back to your farm and let us handle things? And then the farmer goes back there and is like, whatever, and then three weeks later reads a report about a guy dumping snakes in a swamp. It's a bizarre story. And even today, it's considered an urban legend. Even today, it's considered that's just something people believed back then. Even though all those pieces fit together. Is it just like a bunch of conspiracy theories? A lot of weird coincidences that happened so close together that a little bit of mass hysteria kicked in? 
and one snake became 20? Or were multiple groups actually dumping snakes in the middle of nowhere, hoping no one would ever find them? The government, knowing these groups are doing that, and when people complain about it, the government simply shrugs and says, there's nothing to see here. It's just your imagination. The parallels between Viper release stories and UFO sightings is obvious, or any sort of paranormal activity, but specifically UFO, because you have the government kind of poo-pooing the whole thing. Government doesn't really come out and say ghosts don't exist. They really don't care. But you have the people saying, we're seeing this phenomenon in our area that's not natural. And then you have the government and the scientific community saying, that's not true. That's not true. When in fact, the government and the scientific community were actually taking part in their own ways of creating this snake outbreak. But I also like it because it's a fairly harmless conspiracy theory. No one died. There's no tragedy to it. It's just a farmer getting mad and (laughs) he goes to milk his cow and a bunch of snakes come out. Like, it's just that level of a conspiracy theory. A conspiracy theory nonetheless. And again, I think it's important to look at these ones that are much more grounded in reality. Because it gives us clues on how to find these mysteries. It's easy to sex everything up and make everything super dark and super violent and like throw some aliens in there, make aliens drop the snakes. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. It's really easy to do that stuff. It's just a harmless, fun conspiracy theory. And it's a great way to end the week. I like these stories. I like these positive conspiracy theories. It's still a little wacky, still a little mysterious, but not everything has to be doom and gloom. Not everything has to be so dark. I think the key to paranormal stories and ghost stories and UFO stuff is entertainment. We want to shed light on these mysteries and we want to find out more. But not everything has to be so grim. Sometimes it's just a farmer, a bunch of snakes, an empty box, and a mystery. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O'Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great week, guys. Peace.